Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. I love you, buddy. I believe in you. And why don't you introduce your mom and dad while you're while Absolutely. You're so there's a lot of guests today, and I do have my parents here on the front row. Can we welcome Terry and Cheryl Delano right here? <laughs> so honored they're here. Uh, they birthed me. Well, my mom birthed me, and my dad helped out. So, so glad that they are here today. Oh, guys, well, it's so good to be here. How many of you are feeling good in the room right now? I want to just honor the worship team today. How many of you have felt just the tangible presence of the Lord in the room? Isn't that so good? Can we give it up for the worship team? So good. You know, the kingdom of God, and in the scripture it says the kingdom of God is righteousness peace and joy. Two out of those three are felt realities. So 75% of the entire kingdom is about feeling the tangible presence of God. And so, and I just felt like when we were in worship, I felt this impression from the Lord that Dwell Church, we are entering a brand new season where there's an invitation for unusual, tangible, felt encounters with the presence of God, not only corporately, but for you in your individual prayer time. So I just release that over you guys. You know, I, I spoke to the youth this past Wednesday. And I said, if I could impart anything to you guys as teenagers from where you're at now to when you graduate, it would be, I want to give you principles and practical tools on how to find the reference point of God's presence on your own. <laughs> you won't always have me. You won't always have Pastors Dave and Nicole leading you in worship. When you're gone away in college, you need to know how to find this reference point of encounter on your own. And I was having breakfast with Pastor David this past Friday, and we were just talking through this book of Revelation, how it is not only the unveiling of King Jesus, but it is a book unveiling a series of encounters that John the Beloved has. And I really resonate with the life of John the Beloved. Uh, his life was really a season of encounters, or just a series of encounters. There's not a multitude of encounters, but his life was defined by an encounter here when he first met Jesus, then an encounter when he saw Jesus transfigured, and then an encounter obviously seeing Jesus uh, crucified and resurrected from the grave. And, and what, what is so amazing is that there is no recorded scripture of encounter from when Jesus was resurrected all the way to the island of Patmos. So I just, I want to think, man, did he go decades without an encounter as a reference point? And I can, I can just imagine this, John the Beloved being exiled to this cave, having this history of reference points of encounters. However, decades later, he is exiled to this dark cave, and I'm sure he is probably thinking, oh, my greatest moments in the Lord were yesterday. <laughs> My greatest moments are behind me. Little did he know there was the greatest revelation encounter was found in this cave. And I just want to suggest to you, your, your last encounter may have been decades ago. <laughs> it may have been the first time you got saved and you may be in a cave season, but there is an encounter available and waiting for you in your cave. 
if you lean in correctly. And so um, I want us to take a moment. I believe that revelation is birthed from worship, that worship is always unto revelation, and revelation births more worship. And so before we dive into this, let's just take a moment and let's center our hearts on the Lord. Let's close our eyes and just begin centering our hearts on on King Jesus. And let's begin opening up our mouths and just begin blessing him, declaring who he is. Lord, we just continue to bless you. Jesus, we want to see you rightly. We cannot live off of yesterday's encounter. We need a fresh revelation of who you are today. So, Lord, I just pray for everyone in this room. I pray for an unlocking and an unveiling of a new depth of your presence that we have not tasted before, Lord. I pray for a grace in this room in this new season to see you rightly. I pray for an enlightening of the eyes of our hearts to know you, to know the hope that you've called us to. And I just release that over everyone in the room. Let's just take 20 more seconds and just begin blessing him with our words. Jesus, we bless you. We love you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you have just thoroughly enjoyed this series so far and got so much out of it? I think... Pastor John said it the best in our staff meeting a few weeks, weeks ago that we could be teaching on this book for the next 10 years. There is just so much in it. And uh, like I, I said last month, this is not the revelation of the plan. This is not the unveiling of the eschatology or just trying to figure it out. This is the unveiling and revelation of the man of Jesus. And so this is the reading we are taking in this season of the book of Revelation. And you know, for myself personally, through devouring this book, I have never really felt more connected to eternity than I do now in this season of my life. <laughs> Especially today, what we're going to read today is the throne room scene of God, the worship scene of God. And I just see how, how seamlessly connected that reality is with our reality here. How, how what takes place there, the worship songs they sing have a direct impact and manifestation on what happens here on the earth and how our prayers and worship actually have direct impact on the throne room of God because sitting before the throne of God right now are harps and bowls of prayers signifying worship and prayer are the priority of the throne room. If that is the priority of the throne room there, May it always be the priority of our hearts here on this side of eternity. So there's this beautiful interaction and engagement from that side of eternity to this side of eternity. And, and I've just really been pinching myself, realizing I have had this book available to me my whole life. And I've really uh, ignored it, not, not because of the, the scariness or the dark parts, but really because I don't understand it. And that's really what we do in human nature. We tend to always reject what we don't understand. It's like, I don't understand that, so I'm going to reject this book before it can reject me. So we tend to always reject whatever we don't understand. And, and I don't believe the goal is to understand what's happening. It's to be transformed by beholding King Jesus. And that's the goal. It's not to be read with this mind intellect. There is a place for that. But uh, I just feel so strongly in this season there's an invitation for a greater revelation through heart knowledge over head knowledge. So we can go ahead and put slide one up. So before I jump into the, the meat of this message today, 
there's a lot of misconceptions around this book of Revelation that tend to, tend to draw us away. So I want to just hit just briefly on why we tend to avoid the book of Revelation. And one of those reasons is because there is something in the book called the judgments. And so I just want to briefly touch on these three judgments in the book of Revelation. So the first one are the seal judgments. It's interesting the, the direct uh, action plan that, that triggers Jesus breaking the seals is the prayers of the saints are full. So I'm going to get into that later, but that tells me there's a responsibility where we actually have a say when Jesus decides to open the school and break the seals. The prayer and worship movement on earth, the intensity of it is unto Jesus breaking the seals. So there's the seal judgments. This is God's plan against the Antichrist system. They're the trumpet judgments. These are supernatural acts of God, similar to what he did in Exodus with Moses, to hinder the Antichrist, warn unbelievers, and rally the saints for a great prayer movement. And lastly, there are the bold judgments. These are redemptive in nature, calling the unsaved to give their hearts to Christ. Let's go ahead and go to that next slide. So I want to give just clarity on these. It's important to know when we read these that the judgments in Revelation are not intended to war against the church. They are intended to war against the Antichrist and the Antichrist systems. It's amazing to me that in one single day, one single day, the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of our God. And so this is what the, the main intentions of the judgments are. It's not to war against the church. It's to war against everything that hinders the church from having that great grand marriage supper in the end. The next thing I want to say, which is really interesting, I didn't know this, but only 3% of the book of Revelation is about persecution on the church. Persecution will happen. Obviously, it's in, it's in the Bible. But really, in the grand scope of this whole book, only 3% of the book of Revelation is about persecution. And persecution on the bride is not intended to destroy her. What kind of groom would that be if two weeks before the wedding, he's just like, hey, I don't like that dress. That's ugly. That's ugly. That's ugly. <laughs> right? I think Emily would have had a problem with that before we got married. <laughs> it's not to destroy the bride. It's to purify her. It's to make her beautiful. It's to make her holy. It's to make her pure. And so reading the book of Revelation, it needs to be read with the lens that God is good. That we read this, we read the, the stuff we don't understand through the anchor that God is good. Everything he does is done with, with relationship in mind. So we can take that slide off. But reading all this, it, it really sobers my mind to the reality that we are in God's world. He is not in our little world. Does that make sense? Like, like it's so easy to be caught up in our, in our little American world mindset that we just think, oh, heaven's so far off or is God even involved? And God is over here saying, hey, I'm not fitting into your little world box. You are actually in my big grand theme of a story from Genesis to Revelation. And I am inside of this whole thing right here. It's not that he's fitting in our box. He says, hey, you're fitting in mine. <laughs> and so uh, this is how seamlessly connected eternity is connected with earth. And so our, our role here as I'm reading this book of Revelation is not simply to wait till I get to heaven to experience this, but it's to bring heaven's realm 
to my realm here. And how do we do that? Through worship, through prayer, through costly intercession, heaven comes. I'll drink to that. <laughs> that is, in essence, what apostolic ministry is. How many of you have heard that word apostolic ministry before? So I grew up my whole life really thinking that word apostle means just pastor of pastors. Like you climb that, that ladder in ministry and you are just uh, the, the pastor of pastors. And that is true in a sense. However, the original meaning of that word apostle was not a church word. It was not a Christianese word, if you want to say it like that. But it was actually a word used by the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. And really, apostles were used from the Roman Empire. Anytime they would conquer a country, they would send apostles in. And the purpose of apostles were to make Roman culture, make this country look like Roman culture. I'm going to go into this country as a Roman ambassador, and I'm going to go into the culture. Okay, I'm going to go into the arts. I'm going to go into the education system. I'm going to make sure every part of this nation mirrors my home world of Rome. And so this is what apostles, the original word was. And so the first time this word was actually used in a Christianese setting was when Jesus called his disciples apostles. He said, I'm sending you out as apostles. He did not just mean you're going to be an overseer, but I feel like Jesus was saying, hey, your goal, your assignment is to bring heaven into every sphere of culture, every sphere of society as an ap apostle, that apostolic anointing, bringing heaven down. And I want to propose to you that that same assignment has not changed today. That every single person in this room, you are an apostle in whatever uh, realm of influence the Lord has given you. He has just delegated this authority to us. If you're in the business world, if you're in the arts or the media, uh, this is the apostolic anointing he has entrusted us with. It's not just waiting to get to eternity, it's bringing eternity down here. So today, I want to talk on the last word of worship and prayer. Because it's like, how do we do this? How do we, how do we make earth look like heaven? And I want to propose it is really two main elements, worship and prayer. So just to give you context for the journey we've been uh, on in this series, uh, Pastor David started us off with talking about John the Beloved, the writer, John, his backstory, and then I came and did two-part series on the letters to the church, and then Pastor John came and taught us about the throne room scene. And so I'm actually going to go back to where Pastor John, uh, the, the foundation he built for us in the throne room scene of worship in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And so at first, it was, the, this message was titled The Last Word on Worship, but I, reading through this, I'm like, Worship and prayer go hand in hand. And I truly believe that we are entering an era in the world where there will be a massive worship and prayer movement where the two will become one and they will marry each other and that will birth the coming of King Jesus. The intensity of the prayer and worship movement on earth will release the intensity of the coming of Jesus. This is the responsibility we have. Let's go ahead and go to slide three. So slide three. This is God's throne room. The throne room of heaven. This is the grand 
worship service, the biggest worship service you could ever think of is happening here, Revelation 4, God's throne room. So there are 14 different worship hymns sung in Revelation. There are 40 times that the throne of God is mentioned And it describes a relationship between the prayer and worship movement in heaven and the prayer and worship movement on earth. And there are three different perspectives of God's throne room in scripture. And I love this part uh, really a lot. It's Isaiah 6. How many of you are familiar with Isaiah 6? That is when Isaiah sees the train of God's robe filling the temple. He's seeing this exact same throne room that John is seeing years later, but it's just from a different perspective. It's kind of like the gospel. It's just the same account of Jesus, but with different perspectives. Daniel 7, he sees the throne room. And then, of course, John the Beloved, Revelation 4. So I want to use this, this story. So Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, and Revelation 4. So here's a story. There's this Puerto Rican cooking base called Sofrito. How many of you have heard of Sofrito? (laughs) So Puerto Rican food is some of my favorite food on the earth. I've had American uh, chicken noodle soup, but I've had Puerto Rican chicken noodle soup. And Puerto Rican chicken noodle soup is just amazing compared to regular American-style chicken noodle soup because it's this one thing they use called Sofrito. So what Sofrito is is this big mixture. It's onions and peppers and tomatoes and garlics and all these sauces and seasonings I've never heard of. And it's blended and mixed together to produce this beautiful, amazing tasting cooking base that changes your life. (laughs) Amen, right? (laughs) So I don't, I'm very picky eater. I don't like onions. By himself, I am very picky. I can't stand onions. I don't really like bell peppers. They're okay. I can handle them, but I can't just eat them straight up. I don't really care for garlic that much. I like tomatoes. I can handle tomatoes. So I don't like onions. I like tomatoes. I don't like all these things. But when you put all this together, it makes just this amazing tasting dish. Sofrito. Amen. (laughs) That is what happens when we read scripture together. I may not understand what Isaiah is saying here, his perspective. I may not understand that. What Daniel's saying right here, his, his perception, I don't. But when you put it together, it makes this beautiful, amazing taste. And that, that goes not just for these three perspectives. That's with any scripture. It's like, oh, I don't really. This scripture right here cuts me. That tastes kind of bitter. This one's really sweet. But when I add them together, oh, my gosh, it makes sense. It clicks. Mix them together. Make you some Bible sofrito. <laughs> sofrito. I'm giving Goya a lot of plug today. <laughs> but the goal is not to simply understand. It's to taste and see. Taste and see the Lord is good. It's not up here. It's tasting and seeing the Lord is good. Put it together and you'll have something that you've never tasted before. So free to. <laughs> Let's go ahead and go to slide four. Some of you are going to be saying sofrito the rest of the day. Sofrito, sofrito. So I want to talk about... Two amazing words on worship that we're going to see in this throne room scene. And these are words that we are extremely familiar with. And I I spoke last month that 
one, one thing that happens as we grow older in the Lord is we become overly familiarized to these amazing, deep, powerful truths and words like holy, 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 and worthy. Like the more we get repetitious with it, the more numb we can get to these amazing words. So what I want to do today is really defamiliarize our hearts to these foundational worship hymns that they are singing on repeat in eternity, that they never get numb to, they never get overly familiar to. So the first one is holy. This is really the foundational hymn sung in the entire book of Revelation, that single word called holy. So it has two meanings. The first one is to be separate from or purity. And it means that, but I don't think the angels are just saying purity, purity, purity. I like this second definition where they are saying transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty over and over again. They're looking at the face of God and God's face moves just an inch and they are gasping because he moved an inch. I see a new side of his face. Let's sing it again. Transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty. That's what that word means when we are singing it. You can just picture the angels in eternity. Oh, he... He, he moved an inch. There's a new facet to his nature. There's a new side to him. This is how endless our Jesus is. This is how endless our God is. If you are bored in your relationship with the Lord, you may want to check your distance between you and the master. <laughs> this is a, a kingdom of grand excitement. The next word, worthy. So we see this word worthy comes into play the moment that John the Beloved falls on his face and he's weeping. He's saying, no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy to break the seal. And then the elder comes and says, hey, there is one. There is one. Look up. And he sees this lamb. And that's when the song changes in heaven. And we'll talk about this later. But the changing of a song in heaven was not simply a changing of a radio station. But it was a changing of a season in eternity that manifested into a changing of a season on earth. And so he be they began declaring worthy, saying, we boldly stand and agree with your choice of choosing a man, King Jesus, to rule, reign, and administer justice on the earth. So when we sing worthy... We are not only speaking of his worth as God. We are saying, we agree with your choice of choosing King Jesus to rule, reign, and execute this end-time drama plan on the kingdom of earth. When we are singing worthy today, we are not only declaring his worth over our lives in the present, but we are prophesying and declaring his worth in eternity. So every time we sing worthy, it's not like simply, you are worthy over my life. That is true. But there's a different facet where we're prophesying into eternity saying, break the seal, open the scroll. You are worthy. Come quickly. Come quickly. Come quickly. This is really the, the depth of what we are saying when we minister to him through these two simple but yet profound words. Let's go ahead and begin reading. Let's uh, turn to Revelation chapter 4 and start in verse 2. Is everybody good? Cool. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, and there in heaven a throne was set. One was seated on the throne. And the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that looked like an 
emeralds surrounded the throne. And around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. I love this part about the elders. So I, I like to think the Bible, it's not specific on who these elders are. It doesn't say they're angels. There's so many interpretations on this that I'm not going to get into. But I like to think that these are actual saints that the Lord just finds favor on on the earth. And he just promotes to this position of being an elder. And they wear robes. And if you remember from the letters to the seven churches, wearing white robes is actually one of the eternal rewards we get for overcoming on this side of eternity. And what I love that is these robes are white, pure, representing our pure worship. So imagine this. He clothes us in eternity with the way we clothe him on earth with our love and our worship. That's how powerful your, your worship is, is that when we get to heaven, see, on earth, our, our love for him, our worship is, is really internal. You can only really feel it and have only a glimpse, but in eternity, it will be openly exposed and seen. Your love for God will actually be what you wear on your garments. So he will clothe you in eternity with how you love him on this side of eternity. This is what your worship does. This is not not just a 45-minute worship service just to get to a message. This is feeding into what you will get in eternity. This is the eternal reward, robes in white. And I love this also. So picture this. This is the grand throne room of heaven. The grand throne room, the ruler of the universe has a throne, and yet he is so secure in his authority that he administers other thrones around him. The God of the universe is, is fully secure in the authority that he delegates. He is fully secure in himself and the authority that he delegates and administrates. If that's how the government of heaven is, how much does the government of my home need to look like that? Or the government of any area of influence you are in. This is the kingdom of God. He is fully secure in himself to delegate. Hey, you get a throne. You get a crown. And you're all surrounding me. He is this beautiful. He is this just. He is this magnificent. Next is the crown. So these elders sit on thrones. They are robed and they are given crowns. And they are continually casting their crowns at the feet, at the throne room of the Lord. This is happening as we speak, that crowns are continually being laid down just as new revelation is birthed, as new, new colors are shown to them, crowns are being thrown. How does this apply to us today? I believe these crowns really represent our earthly influence. They represent our earthly favor. Anytime you get promotion, anytime you get maybe a, a raise or any measure of favor given to you, that is a crown that you have. If we do not know how to receive earthly crowns, we will have nothing to throw at his feet. There's this mindset in a lot of the church that really says, I don't want to take God's glory away. And that is pure, and that is beautiful, and it's true. But in John 17, Jesus said, the glory I have, I now give you. How can you take God's glory if he gave it to you? 
He is not, I believe when, when the Lord gives us a measure of favor and glory, it's not a thing of like he's, he's afraid to give it. He's watching to see, will you give it back? What will you do when you come before me and worship? Will you throw it back at my feet? I believe Bishop Garlington mentioned this. I've heard Bill Johnson say it. I've heard a lot of pastors say this, but... Uh, I'll use me as an example. So I was a worship leader when I was a teenager. And anytime I would get off the stage, someone would compliment me. And I would get really insecure and I'd be like, oh no, it, it wasn't me. It was all Jesus. And it was like, wah, wah, wah. And <laughs> it's like, okay, if it was all Jesus, it wasn't that good. If it was all Jesus, we would all be throwing our faces down on the ground. It's like, it wasn't that good, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so if we don't know how to receive personal crowns, we'll have nothing to throw out his feet. So in my life today, if I get any measure of favor or influence or if someone just gives me a simple compliment like I like your shoes or I like the way you, you spoke today, I say thank you and I take it. Thank you. And then at the end of the day when I eat my lunch and I rest, I, I go to my room and I'm alone and I say, Jesus, these were yours to begin with. I'm just going to give them back to you. Jesus, thank you for this crown. But, but you, you and I both know I'm not this good on my own. So, Lord, I'm going to throw it back at your feet. Jesus, thank you. I'm so thankful for this. But, but I'm going to throw it at your feet. If I didn't receive the crown, I wouldn't have had that moment to throw at his feet and love him and worship him at that degree. He is honored when we are honored. He is honored to favor us. This is our God. <laughs> These are our throne crowns. If we don't know how to receive crowns, we will have nothing to throw at his feet. So I want to take just the next few moments. I want to give us three distinct keys the throne room of God shows us. The throne room of God really shows us three keys that I personally take away. Uh, the first one is priority. The second is responsibility. And the last one is simplicity. So we can go ahead and um, go to key number one, priority. We're going to go ahead and read Revelation chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 8. It says, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song. It's amazing to me that this scene right here shows what the kingdom of God truly prioritizes. This is a kingdom of priorities where there's so many different truths that we live by as Christians. There's serving, there's worship, there's prayer, there's giving, all this list of priorities. And I want to propose that the kingdom of heaven has a value system of of truths that he values more than others. It doesn't make them less true, but it just means he values others more than the others, if that makes sense. And here in this, this throne room scene, the two foundational elements that are continually before the throne, it's not a bowl filled with the amount of souls that we have saved, although that is absolutely needed and important. It is not a bowl filled with the amount of times we served, although absolutely that is a part of the Christian life. 
It is a bowl filled with the prayers of the saints in intercession with the harps of the angels, showing us that the priority of the government of heaven, the two top ranking systems in government of heaven is worship and it is prayer. The harps are worship. The bowls are the prayers of the saints. This does not negate all these other amazing truths that we have in the kingdom of God at all, but it just shows us what is most valuable to the heart of God. Mary and Martha. I've heard it say Martha was making sandwiches that Jesus never ordered <laughs> while Mary was sitting at his feet. Serving is not evil, absolutely not. It's not bad, but it is not what Jesus wanted in that moment. And Mary was current with the Lord, and Martha had to catch up. And he said, Mary has chosen what is better. Come and be on this level. Come up higher. Prioritize this. Out of this overflow, that happens more easily. Out of this overflow of love and worship, I serve the best. Out of this overflow of prayer, worship, I love my wife the best. Out of this overflow of prayer, worship, and adoration, I give the best. Out of this priority system, everything else just flows naturally out of my heart. I give best when I am dedicated in my prayer room, in my prayer closet. I serve best when I am just burning in love for Jesus. Burning in love for Jesus is not just meant to be contained in a fireplace. It's meant to spread out and be a wildfire. Pastor David spoke about the community aspect of being hot for God but cold for people. This is what it is of I get hot in here and I release it when I go serve in my church or wherever you're at. I, I come here, and then I let it out here. This is the value system of heaven. Reinhard Bonnke, he was an incredible evangelist. When he uh, first started out in ministry, he had this prayer that just moves me. He says, Lord, he said, Lord, help me to mind now what will matter in the end. In other words... Let me prioritize now what you prioritize when I get to eternity. <laughs> I've said it before. I pray this prayer. Lord, shock me now. Don't shock me in the end. Shock me now. Don't shock me when I stand before you. If there's anything in my life that should not be there, reprioritize my life here on the earth. And don't shock me in eternity. <laughs> I want to get it right here. And this is the, the value system of heaven. The overflow of how we love our family, how we love our, our church, how we love the world, how we do whatever we do in life is done best when I am hot in prayer and worship. This is the throne room of heaven. Number two, the second key, responsibility. The responsibility. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 5 now, starting in verse 7. This is the Passion Translation. It says, I saw... The young lamb approached the throne and received the scroll. Or another translation says, take the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat there. And when the 24 elders and the four living creatures saw the lamb had taken the scroll, they fell face down at the feet of the lamb and worshipped him. Each one had a harp and golden bowls brimming full of sweet fragrant incense, which are the prayers of God's holy lovers. And they were all singing this new song of praise to the lamb. So this scroll that is in the right hand of God, this scroll represents God's title deed to the entire world. 
this is not a light matter. This scroll is in the right hand of the Father, and it is the title deed to the whole world. And Jesus comes and takes the scroll out of the right hand of the Father. This is just a magnificent moment, and all the elders fall down because no one touches that, thr that throne, much less takes something from the hand of God, the title deed to the earth. But this just reveals how, how much trust the Father has with the Son, who has with the Holy Spirit, how they are not intimidated with each other. There's a, there's a trust system involved where heaven did not break down the moment someone grabbed that scroll out of the throne, the hand of God. Yes, Jesus is 100% God, but he is also 100% man. And this scene is just shocking. And all the elders just fall down, knocked out by the power of God at this moment. And I can just picture this. Oh, it's time. Oh, that time we've been waiting for, it's here. Whether this happens in the generation here or a hundred generations to come, this just moves me. This constant interaction between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Next, it says that these bowls of prayer were brimming full with the prayers of the saints. If it said that these bowls were full with the prayers of angels, then that would give you and I every right to sit back as a spectator and just applaud and wait. But because it says the saints... We lose our right to be a spectator, and we're invited to be a co-laborer. I want to propose that your prayers do not just impact your life now. They go into eternity. <laughs> your prayers and your worship are not just impacting earth now, but they are impacting the speed and intensity of the coming of Jesus. The bowls were brimming full with the prayers of the saints. They didn't say prayers of the angels. That would have been awesome. We could take a vacation and not come to church at all and just wait. But this is the prayers of the saints. <laughs> we have a responsibility. The strength and intensity of the prayer and worship movement on earth directly impacts the speed and intensity of Jesus breaking the seals. I suggest in the coming decades, as we get closer and closer to the coming of Jesus, these two truths of prayer and worship will rise to the immediate forefront of the church, and it will be a bride driven not by influence or recognition, but by the intensity and the, 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 the heat of prayer and worship. That the, the generation that the Lord comes back in will not be a weak prayer movement, but it will be this hot, burning bride filled with the fire of prayer and worship. It's responsibility. What is responsibility? It's a response to your ability. It's a response to the ability you have to pray. It's a response to the ability you have to worship. And when I was younger, I used to really cringe when I would hear the words like we're going to a prayer and worship service. It's not that I didn't love God. I loved him. I always loved the Lord my whole life. But it was, it was the fact that that I had this shallow understanding of the presence of God at, at different seasons of my life. There was a season where the Lord would just be burning so brightly in my heart, and then little by little, as more time got away from that encounter, I, I would just get less and less aware, and, and, and it would just fade away, and I would just try to go be with the Lord in prayer and worship in my own. I would just feel like I was hitting a wall, 
and I would really just tap the wall. I wouldn't even hit it. I would just, okay, tap the wall. Okay, I'm not getting anywhere today. Let me just try tomorrow. And little by little, I just, the fire really just waned out until one specific season, the Lord really can kick that wall down for me. And then little by little, the wall started coming back up. And I was like, no, I'm getting discouraged. I, I don't know what to do. And the Lord told me specifically, saying, I'm not going to kick it down for you this time. I have given you everything you need to relight that fire of prayer and worship in your heart. See, many times the Lord will completely give us everything we want without hesitation to emphasize your identity as a son or daughter. But sometimes he wants to emphasize your authority and he'll say, everything you need is inside of you. Get up and go kick that discouragement down and rise above and find me again in that place of prayer and worship. It's said in, this, in the scripture that they sang a new song. I, I said this a few minutes ago that this was not just the changing of the radio, but this was a changing of a season in heaven that directly affected a new season on the earth of the end times. This new song they sung, it wasn't just, oh, let's, let's sing something else. It was, oh, the end is near. Let's sing a new song, and it's going to directly manifest into a new season on the earth. We can all agree that 2020 was an insane year, right? We can all agree something changed in the air. I'm not proposing that the end time song has been sung, but could it be a new song was sung in heaven that directly affected a new season on the earth, a new season of urgency, a new season of, of the bride awakening and arising? Could it be a new song has been sung? And that we are living, what we are living in now in 2020, 2021 is a direct manifestation of a new song sung in glory. It's responsibility. You know, recently in, in the last several years, uh, terms like revival and awakening, I'm so thankful that they have come back to being talked about in the church. And really, they, they're really kind of thrown around loosely. I, I throw them around loosely really all the time too, without much conviction. It's like, oh, if we just have revival, you know, everything would be great. Or if we just have awakening. And, and when we say these words, we're not understanding that there's an actual price to pay for revival, for awakening, for an outpouring. There is a responsibility we have to contend in the place of prayer and worship. Me and Emily, one of our favorite shows is The Office. <laughs> Thank you. And there's this certain episode where the boss, Michael Scott, he's in a bunch of money problems. He's, he has so much debt, and uh, one of his coworkers says, hey, if you declare bankruptcy, all of your problems will just go away in an instant. Just declare it, and it'll go away. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to do that. So he gets up in front of the whole office and shouts, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and it's just dead silence. And so his coworker comes to him and says, hey, you realize you can't just declare bankruptcy and expect something to happen. He said, I didn't just shout it, I declared it. <laughs> but a lot of the global church can be a lot like Michael Scott. <laughs> we really, there's nothing wrong with declarations, we need them. But instead of just shouting these words, we don't realize, hey, there is actually a price we have to pay for an outpouring, for a revival. <laughs> I 
I'm not sure how many other married couples are like this, but when Emily and I go to bed at night, we're both in our cozy beds, comfortable, warm, and usually sometimes one of us gets really thirsty and wants water. It's usually me, and I don't want to get up. I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm warm. It's cozy, and so I look over. I'm like, babe, can you get me a glass of water? She's like, okay, but you got to do this for me tomorrow. So she gets up, gets the bottle of water, and brings it to me. And then the next day, it could, be, it could be her, hey, I'm thirsty, can you get me water? Okay, I owe you. What's funny is that we are both thirsty enough to ask for water, but we are not thirsty enough to get up, go to the fridge, and get it on our own. And I want to propose to you that this is an hour where asking is not enough, that, that we need hours in prayer, we need hours in worship, we need hours loving him. This is a different hour. <laughs> Evan Roberts has just been one of my heroes to read about. He was an incredible revivalist who led the Welsh revival. And uh, he, it was a revival on prayer and worship. That was really what defined this revival. And he's just an incredible man. And he was going to Bible college. And they were teaching him a lot of head knowledge and not a lot of heart knowledge. And he remembers in his time in school walking past a cross and he remembers looking at this cross, and it did nothing to his heart when he gazed at this wooden cross. And he said, something's wrong. This is the emblem of my faith, and it does nothing to my heart when I look at it. And he was just so convicted with anguish that it drove him to quit college. And he dedicated his life to hours bathed in prayer and worship and loving Jesus just to per just to get that tenderness again. At what lengths will we go when we notice our heart is cold to find that fire again? Where will we go? What lengths, what price will we pay to taste that again? So the Lord met him, marked him, and half the nation of Wales was saved by one man's responsibility. One man created an entire tipping point that saved half of a nation. Emily and I recently, a couple months ago, we felt like the Lord asked us to launch worship and prayer nights once a month in, in our hometown where we grew up in Colleen and to call them Jesus nights and really just to contend for revival and pray for the sick. And, and we realized that when we started this, that we couldn't just slap the name of Jesus on a logo and expect fire to fall. We couldn't just make a banner or, or make a sign with his name and expect, oh, healings to happen we felt this, this deep weight from the Lord of you need hours built, bathed in prayer. You need to be with me. You need to be hot with me to be hot in front of other people. And so uh, I just see the Lord so strong in this hour giving us the responsibility of what price will you pay for the fire? What price will you pay? We were, uh, you know, this, the majority of this last 10 years of church culture has been beautiful, but a lot of it has been how comfortable and convenient can we make people. And there's absolutely a place for that. However, I want to propose that is your convenience and comfortability is not at the top of his priority list. He's more interested in your transformation than your comfortability. <laughs> what, a, what kind of a son would I be if I just laid at my parents' house all day I'd be comfortable. <laughs> I'd be comfortable. It'd be convenient. 
but I wouldn't have transformation. I would not have impact on the earth. What kind of parent would, would, would love that? <laughs> so the Father, in his love, in his grace, he is more interested in our transformation than you and I being comfortable and convenient. <laughs> this, is, this is our God. If there's a price to pay in the place of prayer and worship. Number three is simplicity, and I'll close with this if I could get piano. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. It's, it's amazing that, you know, I say price to pay. It sounds like weighty, but really it's, it's just being with him. <laughs> it, it sounds complex. It's not. It, when we say a price, it's, it's not like it, it's this, this invitation to love him. <laughs> That's really what it is. And it's to call your soul when your soul doesn't feel like it, when your soul is downcast. No soul, I am going to take my soul to that throne room in Revelation. I'm gonna call you up, arise, awake, and bless the Lord, and we're going to that throne room. Whether you like it or not, we're going there. And I'm gonna be transformed today. One of the single greatest points that moves me from this throne room scene in heaven is the simplicity of their devotion. The simplicity of the elders, the simplicity of the angels. Understand what's happening here. There's nothing simple about it, but their devotion is simple. <laughs> there's nothing simple about the lightning, the thunder. The, there's a lot going on. However, there's a simplicity in their devotion. It's one thing to have a busy life. It's another thing to have a busy heart. It's one thing to have a lot going on and we, that we can't control, but I can control the busyness of my heart. I can control the direction I point my heart to. You know, the, the deeper we go in the Lord, the more easier it is to access him, the more simpler it is to access him. Where I come to the point where, okay, I'm, I'm feeling anxious. All I got to do is take one look to the right, and oh, there you are. I love you. I love you, Jesus. You're beautiful. You're worthy. You're altogether lovely, Lord. How I love your voice. It's not so much the words that you speak, but it's just the voice, your voice that moves my heart. Lord, thank you. It's simple. And transformation comes. The simplicity of, of devotion. It's not only simple, but it's specific. I've heard it say before that you can never be dynamic until you become specific. You could have this scattered heart where you could have a heart just with this simple devotion the story I'm about to read is the story of Jesus reclining at Bethany where Mary Magdalene breaks her, her jar of oil on his feet and that word Bethany I think I've said it here before it means house of poverty Jesus the night before he was going to go to his most devastating moment in life chose to go to a place called poverty to recline and be ministered to. Not financial poverty, but the poverty of the soul. You see, the, the world mind comes to Jesus saying, teach me the stuff so that I can be successful. But the Bethany heart comes saying, if you don't speak to me today, I am dead inside. If you don't speak to me right now, then I have nothing. I just want to minister to you. This is the, the Bethany heart that says, oh, I can have everything. I can have all these blessings, but I could be dead inside. 
There's an ache in my heart that none of these things can make, give me that one thing. Many of us spend most of our lives saying no to thousands of things because we haven't said yes to one thing. The one thing of his presence, the simplicity of his face. Jesus refuses to be simply an addition to our lives. He wants everything. Notice there's only one on the throne in heaven. It makes me ask the question, how many are on the throne of my heart right now? How many idols am I enthroning in my heart? Is there one or is there a multitude of idols in my heart that I'm anchoring my soul in? Let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. This is obviously an extremely familiar passage that is your typical worship sermon, Bible story. But like I said at the beginning, I want us to read it as if it's the first time we've ever read it. Read it with awe. Read it with wonder. This passage of Mary Magdalene is so beautiful. In my opinion, this is just my opinion, but I believe Mary Magdalene, aside from Jesus, is one of the most famous people in heaven. After she does this extravagant act, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, this story of this woman will be told along with it. I just believe she's one of the most famous people in heaven. If, if I remember this correctly, this act of, of Mary's breaking the jar of worship was the only time recorded in scripture where somebody came to Jesus with no need at all, simply wanting to love him and minister to him. It's obviously not illegal. He never rebuked anyone or sent anyone away that came with the need, absolutely not. But it just shows how rare it is in scripture for a person to come to him just with the heart that says, I want to love you. If it's that rare in scripture, how rare would it be today in today's world? Nothing wrong with coming to him with a need first, but, but something moves him and marks him in a way when you say, I'm going to put my 10 list of needs on a shelf and I want to just love you and bless you. And by the time I get done loving and blessing you, I don't even have that list of prayer needs anymore because <laughs> you take care of everything. This is who Jesus is. This is what he does. And I believe we're entering this hour in the church where we begin asking the questions, Jesus, what do you need? What do you want? What, what do you like from us? Mark chapter 14. Go to that. Starting in verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil. What does oil represent? It represents worship, represents prayer, represents intercession. She broke the jar and poured it on his head, showing she could have just poured it, but she broke it as an act of sacrifice, something to cost her to say, after this is out of the jar, it's not going back in. <laughs> she poured it on his head, but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For this oil might have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor, and they began to scold her. Leave her alone, Jesus said. She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor, and you can do good for them, but you do not always have me. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. It's interesting that one person's act of sacrificial worship caused everyone in the house to experience the fragrance, but only two left the house with oil on their skin. Many in the house smelled the oil, but only two truly got it on their skin. This can sometimes look like a worship scene in churches all over. There could be one or maybe two in a room that are giving this sacrificial act of fragrant worship and then the presence, the weightiness of glory comes in and an entire congregation can benefit from the sacrifice of one. This is the power of our worship. But the question can be asked, what would happen if we were breaking our, all breaking our own jars of oil at his feet instead of just one or two benefiting from an entire congregation? What if, one or, what if everyone broke their jars of sacrificial oil at his feet rather than living off the fragrance of someone else's devotion? Extravagant, extravagant worship will do one of two things. We will either reject what we don't understand or we will allow it to expose us to contend for a greater encounter. Just imagine the people in that room. I want to be able to give that. Worship always inspires more worship. I said in the, before that in the natural, we get hungry by not eating. In the spirit, we get hungry by eating. This is what could happen in a, in a regular Sunday. I am watching the person's worship who's doing the flags. Oh my God, I feel that fragrance. I want to break my jar open like that. And I get this, this thing in me of sacrifice. And then it, it inspires someone else, then another person. Then you have this Revelation 4 throne room scene where all the elders are casting their crowns. This is what heaven is desiring on earth. This worship scene in heaven. And I just feel this morning the Lord is continuing to beckon us to put more on the, on the line, more love, more fire. It's, it's not ever in the nature of God to shrink a flame. It's never in his nature to shrink a flame. Lastly, Jesus said this last phrase, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. It's important to remember that Jesus he lived in two realities at once. <laughs> he was on the earth, and he lived in heaven. His spirit was in heaven, he was on the earth, and he lived in these dual worlds, these dual realities. And it's important to know what he is speaking about when he is speaking, which realm, which reality he is speaking. So he says, whenever, anytime the gospel on earth is proclaimed, so he's talking about this realm, there will also be an addition to this. Someone else will proclaim this woman's act of worship, and I suggest it will be told in eternity. How beautiful is this? I don't know about you, but here on earth, anytime I've been in church a long time, I've heard a lot of gospel messages. Anytime a gospel message has been preached on earth, I haven't also heard, in addition, Mary's story. If it is not being proclaimed here on earth, I can just see myriads of angels shouting, they told the gospel, remember Mary's devotion, remember that act of worship, remember her sacrifice. This fame is being proclaimed in heaven, a woman with no notoriety. All she had was this Bethany heart that said, I want to love you extravagantly. Anytime the gospel is proclaimed on this side of eternity, her story of worship is proclaimed on the other side of eternity. This is our worship. This is throne room worship. 
can imagine just moments in people's lives all over this room not feeling like worshiping, not feeling like seeking the Lord, not feeling like getting up today and doing what God has asked us to do. And I just see recordings in heaven of, oh, she did it. Oh, he did it. He did it. Let's put that, proclaim it on the loudspeaker of heaven. This is the effect our worship has. It does not just affect earth, but it affects eternity. I talked about the revival in Wells. It was really spearheaded by Evan Roberts, but few of us ever hear of this woman named Flory Evans. Flory Evans was a young lady, a teenager, who was in these revival meetings, and before the revival broke out, Evan Roberts was still plowing and contending for revival, and one specific night, the night the revival broke out, the pastor asked different people in the congregation, what does Jesus mean to you? And Flory Evans, this young girl, stood up and simply said, I love Jesus with all of my heart. And immediately weeping started breaking out all over this chapel. People started falling on their faces. This tipping point, this tipping point came that affected an entire nation. Bars ended up closing down all, all over this nation of Wales. This one young lady's simple act of devotion was the spark, the trigger that lit the fire that set this entire country ablaze. I want to propose what would happen in America, what would happen in this city with that, that same simplistic love, that same simplistic devotion, that tenderness. I love Jesus with all of my heart. It's a simple phrase, but just because something is simple does not mean it is not deep. It was simple, but it was so deep, it shook an entire nation. Jesus, I just pray this morning, I feel you raising the standard of devotion in our lives. And Lord, we, we feel the invitation to come up higher. We feel the invitation to live our lives in a greater depth of sacrifice, of, of devotion to you, of devotion to getting in our rooms, to closing the door, and to being face-to-face -face with you. So, Lord, this morning, I just pray over every single heart in the room. I pray for fresh fire to fall on the cold hearts. I pray for the lethargic hearts that can't seem to get up out of this slump of spiritual deadness. I pray for the fire of God to fall because we've all been in that place. So, Lord, I pray for the grace of God to kick down every single wall that anybody may be facing between them and their relationship with you. Lord, I pray, thank you, you are the great high priest who lights the fire. So Lord, we give you our sacrifice and we just ask for the fire to fall on every heart in this room. We say fire fall, fire come. Jesus, we just cry out for a greater release of your presence. Can we take a moment and stand to our feet? And if, if, if that resonates with you at all and you are just hungry for just a fresh, fresh fire from the Lord, just the freshness of God. Maybe it's been years since your last encounter, since your last touch. I feel an invitation this morning for a fresh wave of glory over your life. And let's just begin lifting our voices, opening up our mouths and asking, not only asking, but crossing that line from asking to doing, to doing something we've never done before. Lord, to go where we've never gone before, let us do what we've never done before. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.